0: This is Max Reaper of Royals Review. We're using this time off from regular podcast to focus on Royals history in a segment called Rewind Yourself. In this series, we plan on looking at some of the overlooked moments in Royals history from the good to the bad to the ugly. In this episode, we will cover the Mark Davis and Storm Davis signings of 1989. This is Rewind Yourself. We're where you want to be. Baseball with the
1: Royals. If you want to be happy the You want to see all of the excitement. This is the place where
0: the wall wanna be yelling like crazy for the guys you love to see. Come on out and join us. This is the place you want to be. We're where you want to be. Baseball with the Royals. And joining me for this episode of Rewind Yourself is Dave o. You can find his cl- podcast Clubhouse Conversations at clubhouseconversation.com, where he sits down with Royals players from the past and the present for engaging in insightful interviews. Dave, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Hey, brother. How's everything going with you? It's good to be on with you.
0: Yeah, it's uh, kind of nice to talk baseball, even though there's not a lot of baseball going on. And I appreciate you having you on, because I know you are a, a, a really knowledgeable fan about baseball history and a big, super big baseball fan. You've got some great interviews with some of the Royals players that I grew up with. Uh, so I really appreciate having you on, man.
1: Yeah, it's always, it's always great to come on, and, and I'm like you, I love Royals history, so I'm excited to talk about, uh, you know, you said the good, the bad, and the ugly. I suppose the Mark and Storm Davis, maybe not quite the ugly, but not far off, but I'm hoping, is, is there a possibility? Can I make a request for a future episode? Could you chronicle for the ugly some of those uh, mid-2000s Royals teams when they were trying to rob home runs and the ball would drop on the warning track and, you know, <laughs> getting hit in the side of the head on a relay throw in San Diego for the play at the plate? When um, Ken Harvey is not paying attention, can we get some of those ugly moments chronicled later on in a different episode? Because I would love that.
0: <laughs> yeah, my my holy grail is like uh, I don't know if you remember the Chip Ambrose game where he dropped uh-huh. the fly ball to extend yep. the losing streak to what, was eighteen games or whatever it was. Yeah, uh, I've it, not it was been able to find Cleveland. Yeah, yeah, uh, I've not been able to find any video or audio of that game. And if I could, uh, that would just be amazing to have because that was well like the epitome I, of that I don't era. Have the-
1: yeah, sorry to talk over you. I'm just excited to talk about that. I don't have the audio of that, but I do know what Denny Matthews said. And when it wasn't that was, it was a high fly ball, Ambrose underneath it, and he dropped it because, of course, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Which <laughs> that was the actual clip.
0: And Denny Matthews was all of us at that time. So, yeah, but so we'll, yeah, we'll definitely have to get to some of the early 2000s because there are some definitely interesting moments, uh, good and bad, from that yeah. time. And we did talk about last uh, episode. We did discuss the Eduardo Vici's game with Brad Porter. Uh, so that was kind of fun oh, to look yeah. back on because that was kind of uh, really symbolized how bad that era was. But we're going to talk about the Mark and Storm Davis signings of 1989, which is a much different era in Royals history. It was actually quite successful. Uh, you know, 1989 at least was a very successful season. Uh, and let's, let's start with the signings by talking about where the Royals were in 1989. As I said, they were a very good team at that time winning 92 games. Uh, Only two teams in baseball won more games that year, the Chicago Cubs with 93 wins, and the Oakland Athletics, who won 99 games. Unfortunately, the Athletics were in the same division as the Royals, and with no wild card in place at the time, that meant the Royals were shut out of the postseason. The A's went on to sweep the Giants in the World Series that fall, and everyone seemed to agree that they were kind of a loaded juggernaut, led by the Bash brothers, of course, Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. And Dave, I don't know if you were like me at all, uh, but I kind of had a love-hate love, hate relationship with the A's at that time. I knew they were rivals. I knew the Royals were kind of behind them in the standings. I think I went to a series, a big series late in the year that year, where the A's kind of took it to us, which kind of broke my heart at the time. On the other hand, I had a big poster of Jose Canseco in my room. I mean, he was like the first 40-40 guy, 40 home runs, 40 stolen bases. He seemed like just uh, an amazing baseball player who had, you know, big had big muscles. Of course, now we know why he had big muscles. Uh, because of performance-enhancing drugs, but at the time he just seemed superhuman, and I don't know, it just seemed like the Oakland A's were a really cool team that just we're, were just going to beat everyone that year.
1: I'll tell you what, man. I, I mean, I respected, I, I guess, the A's, but I hated them. I mean, like, <laughs> talk about hate. I mean, I I remember sitting out there that that season actually at the game, and you know, people were like throwing things from the upper deck at A's fans. Like Kansas City, like I, I, they've always we've always hated Oakland here, right? I mean, especially now with the Raiders. and I guess the a's for for stealing our baseball team some of the animosity was probably held over at that time for kids that were you know had been taught that from their parents to hate the a's and of course they were good like you said but well the funny thing about the 89 season is so they can only actually played in 65 games that year but he hit you know the 17 home runs, so he was he had a good year but he actually missed a lot of that year but yeah you, that team was loaded i mean i got the roster right in front of me here but you know, listen to these guys you got ricky henderson i mean people forget about dave henderson um, who had a heck of a year that year and uh you know, like you said, Carney Lanceford, mcguire Steinbach, Dave Parker, Stan Javier, Walt Weiss. I mean, you go up and down that roster, even Billy Bean had a few bats that year. But you know, pitching wise, Dave Stewart, a lot of people remember them for the obviously for the bats, um, mainly for the you know, the Henderson brothers, and they weren't actually brothers, but Henderson brothers and and Conseco and uh, McGuire, but you go through that rotation; they were loaded there too. I mean, Dave Stewart won twenty-one games with a low three ERA that year. Mike Moore won nineteen with a two-six-one. Bob Welch won seventeen with a three. Our boy Storm Davis, that we'll talk about here in a few minutes, won nineteen that year with a four-three-six. Um, you know, then they had Dennis Eckersley at the back of that bullpen with a one-five-six, and and Todd Burns and Gene Nelson and Honeycutt. I mean, that was just that ace team was good, but. Um, Conversely, you know, our Royals were pretty doggone good, too, and, you know, had there been a wild card back then, obviously, the Royals would have easily been in the playoffs. Uh, But, Max, if you go back and look at that season, I mean, the Royals up and down, I mean, could really match the A's pretty much everywhere. They didn't quite have the pitching. That was, in the end, one of the things that kind of bit the Royals, which is why I'm sure, as we'll talk about in a bit, that they went the direction of trying to trying to, to catch the A's through free agency that winter. But I mean, you go through Saber Hagan was 23 and six with a two, one six. That was arguably better than anybody. The A's had gooby three Oh four that year, won 15 games. Tom Gordon was more of a, of a, you know, swingman. He started only 16 games that year, but also finished 16 games kind of randomly. It was kind of like the closer slash fireman and starter in the same year. You'd never see that today, but he won 17 games that year at the three and a half. So, but the Royals, you know, didn't quite have the pitching after that. Monty was a force in the bullpen. They weren't great behind him necessarily that season. the lineup, obviously, we know the lineup. You know, George, Bo, and, and Frank, and Tartable, and Seitzer, and, you know, even solid. Um, Bob Boone was 41 that year, but had a solid season behind the plate. I actually interviewed Rocky Rowe, the umpire, uh, last week, and he told me that Bob Boone was the best framer he ever um, umpired behind. He thought Bob Boone was the best catcher he'd ever – Behind, I found that interesting and kind of surprising. I knew Bud was good, didn't know he was that good. So, um, but yeah, that team was loaded. And uh, and you mentioned it late in the year, the Royals were right there. I mean, if you look late in that year, um, the Royals went twenty one and eight in August in nineteen eighty nine. So they were twenty one and eight. They were only a game and a half out of first place on September the first. Now they only had three games left with Oakland at the very end of that season, which you're referring to. But um, yeah, twenty 21- one. And eight that month and then unfortunately they finished off just 14 and 14 so it was right there for the taking and i'm sure that going into that winter you know the royals felt and justifiably so you know we're a player or two away from catching these guys and overtaking these guys it's just it's funny to look back at that year though and see two and a half million in attendance for the royals and 92 and 70 and they didn't even make the freaking playoffs how hard it was heartbreaking wasn't it
0: yeah yeah and you're right it was it was a team that i think on paper looked maybe better than they actually were maybe because I look at that lineup and I think, wow, that is a really good lineup. You know, Brett passed his prime, but still a very good hitter. I mean, he's well above league average, even for a first baseman. You look at, uh, you know, Bo Jackson, that was kind of his breakout season, you know, where he was all-star game MVP and uh, he finished fourth in the league and home runs that year were 32, finished 10th in MVP voting. You had Danny Tartable, who actually led the team in OPS Plus, was still a pretty feared slugger on the league. A lot of teams wanted him and wanted to acquire him in a trade. Uh, you know, Kurt Stillwell was, you know, this is an era in which shortstops didn't hit anything. And he was a pretty decent hitter for a shortstop. You had Kevin Scyther who wasn't quite what he was his rookie year, but still a pretty good hitter. Uh, Boone, Bob Boone, you mentioned, was a great framer. He won a gold glove that year, I think deservedly so. And you had Mike McFarland, who was kind of more of the offensive catcher, kind of splitting time with him. Uh, and then you had kind of, you know, Willie Wilson and Frank White, but kind of both on their last legs. Uh, and maybe that was part of the reason why the lineup maybe struggled more than did. Also, D.H., I don't know if you remember, but that was kind of a revolving door. They tried Pat Tabler. They tried Billy Bill Buckner, who was kind of at the end of his career. And they just couldn't get uh, the kind of offense. You know, the A's, they had Dave Parker, like you mentioned, who was also a player at the end of his career, but he was still a really productive player, whereas Buckner and, and Tabler, at least Tabler that year, wasn't very good. Uh, so it, it was a lineup except that except with the bases loaded. Yeah, except for the oh god, he was a terror with the bases. Tell, <laughs> tell us a little about Pat with <laughs> the bases loaded, just in case people don't know. Because Pat Talbert was like think, he was kind of like an underrated bench guy, but man, he was just completely <laughs> different when when the bases were loaded.
1: I I think it I don't have the number. I think it was four fifty six for his career. It was like four fifty six or four forty five. He hit almost five hundred, and we're and I want to say it was like. I might be making this up, but I want to say it was like 70 at-bats. I mean, it was a deal. Like, he, yeah. he completely just destroyed it with the bases loaded. Plus, he had uh, the great mullets. you got to give <laughs> him credit for the mullets. We also, Max, have have got to plug my boy Brad Wellman, the utility player on those 1989 Royals, my first favorite baseball player growing up. was He was on that team playing a little second and short. But, yeah, that, that team was fun, man. I mean, you're right. I mean, Pat Tabler maybe didn't quite – um, bring what what the A's had at the same spot but and and, and good call on Kurt Stilwell, who's now of course an agent with uh, the Scott Boris group. Um Kurt Stilwell, hey he had his you know he was he had his own uh, Donruss Diamond Kings card I think the year before that. That was a big deal back in the day collecting baseball cards, right?
0: Yeah, I think he was an All-Star in 88 too, although kind of by default, but uh he was I mean he was like a decent shortstop, maybe I think a little defensively not not as good as maybe the world Royals wanted, but for a guy that could, you know, handle the bat a little bit. I think he was a pretty good guy to put in that lineup, hitting behind some of those bigger bats. And then I forgot to mention Jim Eisenreich, too, who I think that was the year he kind of burst onto the scene. And he was actually named team MVP by the the, the Kansas City Riders uh, over, like, Bo Jackson because they felt like he's a guy that could do a little bit of everything. He kind of played all three outfield positions. I think he even played a little bit of first base, filled in at DH, and was just a guy that could, you know, hit and run if you need to, steal a base, uh, make contact even put one out of the park now and then, so it was it was a team that had a little bit of depth, it just didn't seem like they were able to put up enough runs to, k- to keep up with the Oakland Athletics.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it was... It was just it was it was a frustrating time back then, you know, because the Royals just knew that team could have won the World Series if they got in the playoffs. So, I mean, don't you think that team, if they made it instead of the A's, would have won the World Series? I legitimately think they would have. I think whoever won that division was going to win it that year.
0: Yeah, I think if you if, if they were going up against the A's, I mean, I feel like the A's were just the better team. They they were just a, a runaway freight train. I think if you were if if the Royals had a chance though, it was because of that pitching, uh, because in a short series you got say Saberhagen who that year, I mean, you said 23 wins, 2.16 ERA. He had 9.7 wins above replacement. Of course, you know, that wasn't a stat back then. But uh, if you look, if looking backwards, he was, by wins above replacement, the most valuable player in all of baseball that year. Uh, No one was even close to his his wins above replacement. Uh, And it's also the second best season in Royals history uh, behind Zach Greinke's 2009. So it's, you know, by wins above replacement, and you can quibble with that stat if you want, uh, you know, Sabre Hagen was even better than George Brett's, you know, historic 1980 season. So they had, you know, having him in a short series, Gubazal was very, very good at that time with 15 wins. You know, Tom Gordon uh, started in the bullpen, moved into the rotation, kind of hit a wall in September. But in a short series, you know, perhaps he could have been a really effective third starter. What really hurt them, though, was kind of a lack of depth in that rotation because Charlie Liebrandt. Yeah. And Floyd Bannister, who was a veteran they acquired in a trade, they were really disappointing that year. Uh, and I think that's probably why the Royals figured they needed to go out and get another starter because those two guys were so disappointing. But in the short series, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think maybe they could have neutralized the A's like the Dodgers did in 88 uh, in the playoffs, don't you think?
1: Yeah, yeah, and 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 we'll get to it in a minute, I'm sure. But, yeah, you can, you can see why the Royals did what they did going into 90. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, by the way, real quick here, I just found a – an old Sports Illustrated article from 1990 on Pat Tabler called Mr. <laughs> bases Loaded. Listen to this. In This is as of 1990, so this is this fits what we're doing today. It, it, he, he was 569 with the bases loaded and 65 at-bats with 89 RBIs. Let me repeat that. He was 37 for 65 with 89 RBIs, a 569 average in his first night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: incredible. When we talk about clutch hitting, too, you know, usually you talk about good, good player, you know, hitters that are already already good, doing well in clutch situations. So that's not really, I don't think, evidence of clutch hitting. What does make me believe in clutch hitting is when a guy like Pat Tabler, who is, you know, just kind of a run of the mill hitter, suddenly becomes Superman with, with runners on base, and that's yeah, that's really amazing. He has to be considered one of the best clutch hitters I think in baseball history, just because of those, you know, his numbers are such an outlier, but. Uh, Anyway, the, the Royals, as you mentioned, uh, did set a club record for attendance that year. They drew 2.2 million fans. But owner Ewing Coffin said despite that, the club was losing money due to high salaries and a TV deal that brought in just $4.5 million per year, far short of what other clubs received. Nonetheless, he felt he was in an arms race to compete in the American League Western Division with the A's already having a loaded roster and the 91-win Angels also looking to spend lavishly in the free agent market. Now, Ewing Kaufman always accused the Angels over the years of buying their way into the playoffs, uh, but Ewing Kaufman certainly tried to land big-time free agents of his own over the years, unsuccessfully bidding on big stars in the 80s like Jim Palmer, Pete Rose, and Carlton Fisk. But it wasn't really until the late 80s and early 90s that he actually began signing some of these free agents. And I don't know, it's I can certainly understand why he wanted to bring a big name to try to win a championship, but it seemed like a lot of these big-name free agent signings that they tried in the in this era didn't really pan out so well.
1: Yeah, you you could say that again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's it just seemed like in those days they kind of got away from what had given them success in the '70s and '80s. That is homegrown right. talent. It seemed like the pipeline maybe was starting to run a bit dry, or maybe they they started trading away too many of the prospects, like David Cone. Uh, they traded away a, a promising young pitcher named Melito Perez to get Floyd Bannister and Melita Perez ended up having a couple decent seasons with, with the White Sox. Uh, and so it seems like, you know, maybe the urgency of a championship caused them to maybe take some shortcuts that they maybe wouldn't have taken, you know, in a previous generation. And, so, you know, some of that may have been just the different philosophy of John Sheralds versus like a Cedric Tallis and Joe Burke who, you know, look at the amazing transactions they pulled off in the 70s. The Royals weren't quite able to do that maybe maybe by the by the late 80s and they had to go to the free agent market. But I don't know, what do you think about the direction the franchise yeah. is going overall.
1: So, yeah, I agree. I mean, you look back at that time, and and the Royals did kind of get away from from what had made them great. I mean, you go back and, you know, obviously one of the the feathers in Ewan Kaufman's cap, even to his dying day, and also one of his biggest regrets that he got rid of it was uh, the Royals Academy. You know, the Royals were the first with that vision to find great athletes and teach them how to play baseball. So they, they grew players in that regard, and they, and they drafted well. Especially early, you mentioned Cedric Collins and, and Joe Burke was a, a huge part of that um, as well in those days. And then Scherholz came in. And you're right. I don't. I don't know enough about Scherholz to know how much of of the getting into the free agency game and playing more of the veterans was him versus just you and Kaufman getting older and wanting to win. But it was almost as you note, you and Kaufman almost thinking that. Yeah, these other teams like the Angels and, and, you know, A's, et cetera, the Yankees, et cetera, were, were almost cheating in his mind because they were buying players. They weren't developing them. They were stealing other people's. So, you know, you're right about that. He kind of used to mock people. And then I think post, you know, basically post-86, 87-ish, right around that era, they, they did kind of have a little bit of a change because if you look back at those 88, 89 teams, the majority of those teams, I mean, there were still some young players. Saber was still young, right? Gordon was still young. Bo, Seitzer still all but there are a lot more of your older george brett's and frank white's and willie wilson's and bob boone's and you brought in guys that were veterans like terry leach and uh um i mean i could go up to, i've done the whole roster i'm doing this off the top of my head here but um you know there was definitely a switch there and then the royals did make as you noted some some very poor trades such as not once but twice trading david cohen one of those obviously was much later and there were some, you know, the Royals had Cecil Fielder, which people don't realize. It gave him away for nothing. They, a couple years after that, John Lieber gave him away for nothing, but that's a different story for a different day. But, yeah, there definitely was a little bit of a, a swing in how the Royals viewed um, veteran players in free agency around that time. Um, I think it's definitely right on.
0: The Royals were looking to make a big splash in free agency in the offseason following the 89 season, and they did court some big players like Expos left-hander Mark Langston. A second baseman Tony Phillips and Brewers all-star outfielder Robin Yount. There was also talk that Indian slugger Joe Carter uh, actually publicly went to the papers and said he wanted to play in Kansas City after he had taken up residence in suburban Kansas City. Of course, he was still under contract with the Indians, so the Royals couldn't say anything, and Cleveland ended up shipping him to uh, in a blockbuster deal to San Diego. Uh, the, but the Royals did spend some money that offseason, first locking up ace Brett Saberhagen to a three-year contract worth eight point nine million dollars. It was a contract extension that made him the highest paid player in baseball. Of course, he would only hold that title for a few weeks uh, until the Angels signed Mark Langston to a five-year $16 million to make uh, sixty-million-dollar deal to make him the highest paid player in baseball. So the Royals knew pitching was their calling card, and they, they had to counter that move. So they had Sabre Hagen, Gubazaw, Flash Gordon. They let Floyd Bannister walk in free agency and were looking to move Charlie Lebrand after his disappointing season. Eventually, they would send him to the Braves. That offseason for first baseman Gerald Perry. So that brings us to Storm Davis. Uh, Storm Davis was born George Earl Davis and was given the nickname Storm by his mother after a character named Dr. Storm in a book she was reading while she was pregnant. He was drafted by the Orioles out of high school and was in the big leagues by age 20. In his second year, he won a championship with the Orioles, starting and winning Game 4 of the 1983 World Series. He had a lively fastball and a big curveball, and his future seemed so bright that at one point his teammate Mike Flanagan dubbed him Cy Future. But Storm Davis would not win any Cy Young Awards in Baltimore, and the Orioles shipped him to the Padres before the 1987 season for catcher Terry Kennedy, and just a few months later, he was on the move again, headed to Oakland for two minor league pitchers. It was in Oakland that he was able to revive his career under the tutelage of legendary pitching coach Dave Duncan and manager Tony La Russa. La Russa had developed a new system of modern baseball usage that may seem familiar to many Royals fans. Instead of having his starters go the distance, as many manage- managers did at that time, LaRusso would turn things over to his bullpen in the seventh inning with Gene Nelson in the seventh, Rick Honeycutt in the eighth, and Hall of Fame closer Dennis Eckersley in the ninth. That, coupled with one of the best offenses in the league, helped Storm Davis win 16 games that year, and he won American League Comeback Player of the Year. The next year, he won 19 games despite an ERA of 4.36, and he only pitched 169 innings, or less than 5.5 innings per start. Since World War II, it's still the sixth highest ERA uh, for anyone that's won 19 games in a season, and that includes pitchers in the steroid era. In fact, if you look at ERA+, which kind of takes ERA and normalizes it for the era and ballpark, uh, his ERA+, was actually 85 or 15% below league average, which is the third worst in history for a pitcher with 19 wins. It's also the fewest innings anyone has ever pitched in the history of baseball to get to 19 wins. Uh, in fact, Bill James, the noted samer used Storm Davis as an example of how flawed the win stat is. He once wrote that Storm Davis in 1989 was Quote, 19 and 7, although he probably should have been 8 and 11 based on how he had pitched. Now, Dave, you and I grew up in an era, I think, where wins and losses in ERA was just how you judged a starting pitcher. And because of that, I think I still value wins a little bit, even though in my mind I know, like, okay, it depends a lot on context and it probably shouldn't matter that much. So, uh, how do you feel about wins today? Especially, you know, maybe now we know we, like, a lot of these starters don't go that far deep into games. But back then, you still had guys going seven, eight innings a game. When you look back at some of these stats, can you separate wins in your mind from from how they you know, they're they're more uh, their other independent statistics?
1: Yeah, wins. I mean, wow, back then, like you nailed it, man. Back then, though, I mean, like people didn't really know who Bill James was yet. Obviously people mm-hmm. did not know who any of these people were. There were no sabermetrics there. I mean, there were secretly, you know, there were people that were, uh, you know, playing stratomatic baseball and all the old, uh, rotisserie leagues like that stuff. It was quietly on the underground, but there was no internet to get this out. And there just wasn't the intelligence about the sport of baseball. And wow, how lucky are we today to have the people we do, um, you know, writing and talking and analyzing baseball. But back then wins kind of were the end all be all. And, I and mean, then, what if, you know, growing up, did I think wins were important? Yeah, definitely. Because you, 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 but, I, but, you know, you, you know what, though, Max, even back then when I was younger, I still kind of knew it was a stupid stat. Because, like, remember Bill Gullickson for the Tigers? I remember oh, he yeah. had one year. Didn't he? I think he won. I don't know what he won. Like, yeah, he had, like 20, he had almost a 21 season.
0: Games? Yeah, I think he had a 21 season. Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think he had an ERA near five or something. That's off the top of my head. It was around 1990 ish, but you can go look it up. But, I mean, like, I remember looking at the back of Bill Gullickson's baseball card and thinking, well, that guy's not that good. Like, he has, you know, all these guys that strike out or hit home runs like Cecil and Rob Deere and Kirk Gibson yeah. and Lou Whitaker and all those guys. But I remember thinking, he's not that good. Well, it was kind of the same thing with with Storm Davis. I mean, you nailed it, man. I mean, you, you rattled off the stats. He, I mean, he was 28 years old um, when the Royals brought him in. And, and you can see why they did it, but, like, like, get it, before we talk about that, the, the win, going one more to point about the win thing, it's it's just, it's nowadays, I, I think it's mostly just useless. Like, I don't want to say completely useless. There's some validity to have being a winning pitcher, but you I mean, you look back at Zach Grinky Cy Young Award one year, you know, year, here. he didn't, the wins, losses, you know, he wouldn't have won it if that was a thing. He wouldn't have won it 10 years earlier, mm-hmm. you know, no chance 20 or 30 years earlier. Like, wins don't necessarily mean, I mean, you might have a losing record to be a 500-pitcher and have some of the best, you know, FIPS and, and some of the most, you know, war and some of the advanced matches. You, you might be amongst the leaders and starting pitchers, but have a 500-win-loss a pitcher, and conversely, you might be Bill Gullickson or Storm Davis and really not be that good, but throw five or six innings and have an offense that explodes or the best bullpen in the history of mankind, conversely, your bullpen could blow all your wins and you get no decision. So it's mostly just a useless stat, especially for relievers. That's where it's completely, although for relievers, I will say losses do mean a lot. So I do look at the loss for relievers sometimes, because typically that means you probably aren't a very good reliever. If you've got a lot of losses like Mark Davis did in 1990, we'll talk about that in a minute, but storm Davis, the Royals brought him in, um, he had made only $590,000 in 1989. How weird is that? What's the week minimum? <laughs> 563000 now? Is yeah, that right? Yeah, I think it's five sixty three. Like and he made only $590,000 in 1989 with Oakland. So the Royals bring him into that big contract. He makes 1.2 mil in 1990. 2.4 is what they were going to give him in, uh, in 1991. But, I mean, yeah, if you, if you, from the Royals' perspective, I can understand the Storm Davis signing. Because, like you said, 1 through 3... Um, I I remember back then they were knee jerking Tom Gordon around, kind of like later on they knee-jerked Jeremy Aftell around, mm-hmm. right? He'd be a starter one week and then a reliever the next week and then a starter and the next season. It was the same thing with Tom Gordon, but they pretty much had decided that Gordon would be the number three with Sabes and Gooby, and then you're right, the 4-5 was just wide open. So in, in fairness, I can see why they – I mean, they tried to get Mark Langston, that didn't work. I, I, they wanted to – it was kind of an arms race. Ewan Kaufman was getting older. Um, you know, Scherholz, I, I really want to talk to him someday. I've yet to interview him, but I'd like to hear his thoughts on all this. It'd be fascinating, but you can see why they did it, because they wanted to catch Oakland. There wasn't the wild card. They were damn close. They were getting towards the end with Kaufman, and obviously Brett was at the end, and Frank was at the end, and Willie, and, and all the guys, and you knew you had a couple more years of, of peak Saberhagen and some of those guys. So you go out and sign Storm Davis, but like you said, his numbers, he only won 169 innings. Like, the whip was over one and a half, or right at one and a half. The ERA was basically four and a half. I mean, I don't know, man. It's they bring him in, and, and predictably, I mean, honestly though, he was he wasn't even that much worse. I mean, okay, we, we shouldn't say he was horrible with Oakland, but he wasn't really good with Oakland, right? He was by today's standards. Like by today's standards, I guess he'd be a good like number three. Sadly, but back then that was like a borderline five if you take out the wins. I mean, it wasn't that good. He comes here and has a 4-7-4 in 1990, through only 112 innings. But the whip was basically the same. He had a 1-4 whip. It actually was slightly better, his whip, when he got here in 1990. The ERA was um, up a little bit. The innings were down. So he was, I mean, for what they wanted him to be, he was a colossal failure, right? But, I mean, it wasn't, if you go back and look what, I think Mark Davis is the one we'll get to that was a bigger flop. Than Storm Storm wasn't really that good to begin with. I think the Royals made him into something he wasn't and hoped he would be something he wasn't. And then you had all the Sports Illustrated picking the Royals to win the World Series in 1990, and you had uh, the highest payroll in baseball, which is hard to believe, but they had the highest team payroll. And I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, Storm, Mark got much worse than Storm. Storm was, I guess, bad, but it wasn't like he was that much worse in the year before. Would you agree with that? No, I think
0: that's actually a really good way of putting it. I mean, he was – he was what he was. You know, he was a guy that, like, probably your classic fourth or fifth starter, who could only give you like five, maybe six innings, and then you handed over your bullpen. That's that's all the A's asked him to do, and and I think you're right. His numbers in 1990 with the Royals were pretty similar to those numbers in 1989 with the A's if you take out the wins, and I think even Bill James noted that. He said uh, with wins, Storm Davis was pretty lucky in 89, and in 90 he was probably a little unlucky, but he was pretty much the same pitcher. Uh, So, yeah, I think it's a pretty good way of putting it. Um, And you're right. The Royals really seemed to buy into that win total. And they gave him that three year six million dollar deal. And even at the time, there were some questions from others around baseball and reporters about, you know, how would he do well do and, 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 you know, was his high ERA in Oakland? Uh, A question, you know, what what about the fact that he had really generous run support from the Bash brothers? What about the fact that he pitched in what was essentially a football stadium that had, you remember that Oakland Coliseum at the time, had that spacious foul territory that helped out a lot Mm -hmm. of pitchers because all those foul balls are turning into outs. Uh, But the Royals didn't seem concerned. In fact, pitching coach Frank Funk said, quote, We're not interested in ERA, we're interested in wins. Davis is a veteran who knows how to win. So I think that's kind of the prevailing attitude among, uh, I think, some of the older school guys that, look, this guy, he's been with a winner, he knows how to win. I think there's also probably a little bit of an aspect of, like, we're signing this guy and he's going to help us, and he's taking away from the A's, so we're kind of, you know, double helping ourselves by, you know, catching the A's. So I'm sure that they all kind of factored into it a little bit. So, you know, the Royals had their starting pitcher in tow, but they weren't quite done. They were act- looking to add a veteran reliever as well uh, to join Jeff Montgomery and Steve Farr in their bullpen to kind of match what Larusa had in Oakland, and that brings us to Mark Davis. Mark Ugh. Davis was drafted. <laughs> Mark Davis. Do we was, have to? <laughs> <laughs> Mark Davis was drafted by, drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies out of Chabot College, a junior college in California. By age nineteen, he was already in the big leagues with a cup of coffee, but he wouldn't really stick into the big leagues until a few years later. A few years later, in nineteen eighty three, when he was twenty two years old. And he'd already been traded to the San Francisco Giants with Mike Kruko and Al Holland, or for Al Holland, and uh, Hall of Fame second baseman Joe Morgan. He went 5-17 and 17 as a starter, uh, and I know we just said win-loss record isn't that important, but his ERA wasn't very good either. He actually led the league in earn, earned runs allowed, so the Giants moved him to the bullpen, where his numbers did improve significantly. He struggled in 1987, so the Giants shipped him to the Padres in a seven-player deal that actually sent future MVP Kevin Mitchell to San Francisco. There, in 1988, Mark Davis became the closer for the Padres, earning 28 saves with a 2.01 ERA, and he earned his first All-Star appearance. He followed that up with an even better year in 1989 with a 1.85 ERA, and he led the league with 44 saves. That year, in Cy Young voting, there wasn't really an obvious starting pitcher to kind of anoint as the league's best pitcher in the National League. You had Oral Horschheiser of the Dodgers, uh, who won the award in 1988. He actually led all pitchers in wins above replacement with 7.0. Of course, that wasn't really a stat back then, uh, but he was second in ERA at 2, 2.31. But he only won 15 games for a Dodgers team that was very disappointing in their uh, defense of their title. And you know, at the time, wins were considered really important, so he didn't win. He wasn't uh, going to get the award. Uh, Mike Scott of the Houston Astros won 20 games that year, but he had an ERA of 3.10, which wasn't even in the top 15 in the National League. And he also pitched in a very, very good pitcher's park and in the Astrodome. We also had uh, Greg Maddox of the Cubs and Joe McGrain of the Cardinals having very solid seasons, but instead the voters focused on the closer of the second-place Padres, Mark Davis. Now, the 80s were really when the save stat, I think, really became a big deal. Uh, you know, we saw Raleigh Fingers win the Cy Young in 1981, leading the league in saves. Steve Bedrosian of the Phillies won it in 1987. Willie Hernandez was considered so viable as closer of the Tigers in 1984 that he not only won the Cy Young, but he actually won the American League MVP as well. So it probably wasn't too big of a surprise when Mark Davis won the Cy Young Award in 1989, but it was largely on the back of his 44 saves, I think. You know, we talked about how wins have become kind of dismissed uh, in baseball. I don't think saves have become quite as dismissed, although I, I do think that there's probably I think there's probably less of a value on it than there used to be. How, how do you kind of feel about the save uh, th- these days and a guy like Mark Davis uh, winning the Cy Young Award as a reliever?
1: I think the save stat is, as far as today goes, is a, uh, it's, it's much more useful than win-loss, but it, it, at the end of the day, is it really that big of a deal if you can protect a three-run lead for one inning? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, to me, it holds is almost one of my favorite reliever stats. I think there's some, I think that'll be maybe the next thing is that middle relievers will eventually start getting the due that they deserve, because in a lot of ways, you know, as you know, the game is not one and loss. I mean, it is a lot of times in the ninth, but in a lot of time, in more instances, I feel like the game is not decided in the ninth inning. Usually the game is pretty much wrapped up by then. Um, it's more those, you know, five, six, seven, maybe even eighth inning in today's modern baseball, where things really seem to move where teams win or lose games. So I think eventually there'll be reliever stats that are more important. they will be emphasized more that are around right now, but they'll become more mainstream. The save stat is more useful than the win loss. But again, you know, if you're up by three and you can't get three outs and protect the three run lead, it's, I mean, that's pathetic. A but B it's not really that impressive <laughs> to me So yeah but I mean and, and I've got remind me at the end to tell you A funny Storm Davis story by the way at the end of this We'll, we'll get back to him but the Mark Davis The Cabo College you mentioned little trivia question do you know the two players um, Related to the Royals That have connections to, to, to Cabo Ch- I think it's Chabo, Cabo College in California do you know
0: uh, I wonder Is Ned Yost associated with them Did he go there yeah, okay. yep. yeah. Ned
1: Yost went there and who did uh, he play for
0: uh, like what manager?
1: It, it, the, the coach there was Brad Wellman's dad. At Gene oh, really? Wellman. I wouldn't have guessed a that in my year. <laughs> I, I didn't even realize Mark Davis went there. When, when you mentioned that name, though, I'm like, wait a minute. The,
0: yeah, so that's interesting.
1: But yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. But Mark Davis, I mean, uh, they bring him in, right? And he he had a great season. Now, he was kind of conversely to, to Storm Davis. Because Storm Davis really wasn't that great in 1989, as we just detailed, But But Mark Davis had been pretty damn good. Um, if you go back, like you said, twenty-eight and forty-four saves the previous two years, two oh one one eight five ERA, like that impresses me even today. That's super impressive. I'm well more so impressive today, but I mean, like those numbers were really good. You know, Cy Young, and, and it's amazing again. Look at these salaries. He would made six hundred thousand dollars the year before, yeah. <laughs> which, which I mean, and granted, is is you know worth more back then than it is today, but still, that's insane when you think about how far we've come with salaries and not, you know, it's not just the stats that have come a long way, obviously, and, and understanding it's the salaries more so, but yeah, so the Royals bring him in $2.2 million in 1990, and what an absolute disaster.
0: You know, I mentioned the saves, but he was actually a leg- legitimately good reliever. I mean, he was, you know, in 1989 wow. he was worth four wins above replacement for which for a reliever, that's, that's really good. And He pitched 92 innings, uh, and he was just a really solid, you know, shut the door closer. So he was a legitimately good closer and, you know, he should have won all the awards for closers. You saw young, you can quibble. I mean, there really wasn't like a standout starting pitcher that year, I guess you could argue, but, uh, but he certainly had a very good year that year. And fortunately for him, he had free agency at, at just the right time because uh, he could now explore the market. And, you know, he did want to stay in San Diego and show some loyalty to that organization because they did give him a chance after he had been a journeyman. But, he wanted at least a four-year deal, and the Kroc family owned the Padres at the time. The Kroc family, most known for owning McDonald's. Uh, they were looking to sell the team, So, and they've always been kind of a team that can't really you know, bid top dollar on free agents. So they gave him a four-year, $12 million take-it-or-leave-it offer, and Davis left it. Uh, the Royals did come in with a four-year, $13 million deal, but there were reports that the New York Yankees, of course, offered him five years and $16.5 million dollars. Now, this is a different Yankees club than maybe we know today. The 1989 Yankees uh, had their first losing season in the Bronx in 16 years, and they were an old, dysfunctional club. Of course, in 1990, they would have the worst record in the American League, and their owner, George Steinbrenner, would be suspended from baseball for paying a man to dig up dirt on a star player, Dave Winfield. So, Mark Davis wasn't really interested in playing for a team that was on the downswing like the Yankees. Uh, He also drew attention from the Tigers, the Phillies, and the Mariners, but all of them were seller-dwelling clubs as well. Mark Davis wanted to win, and the best offer from a winner was from the Royals. So on December 11, 1989, Mark Davis signed a four-year, $13 million contract with the Royals, which gave him a higher per-year salary than the deal Mark Langston had signed just a few weeks earlier, which made Davis, at least on a per-annual basis, the highest-paid player in baseball. Davis admitted he turned down larger deals to play for the Royals, but said he was eager to come to Kansas City, saying, quote, Kansas City was high on my list of teams from the beginning. I'm really a family guy, and this is a family-type atmosphere. The stadium, the area, and the team. The signing made the Royals the first team ever to have two reigning Cy Young Award winners on the same team, Brett Saberhagen and Mark Davis. Manager John Wathan said, quote, What if Brett Saberhagen is going into the ninth inning with a lead? I'd have to decide whether to leave one Cy Young winner out there to finish or bring my other Cy Young winner in from the bullpen. I'm going to enjoy these kind of problems. And I remember when they signed Davis, I was ecstatic. I mean, I was like 11 years old at the time, and I thought this this is what's going to bring us over the hump. And I remember I asked my dad if we could get World Series tickets that year, and you mentioned like Sports Illustrated picked them in the World Series. I remember I had one of these kids' books that made predictions for baseball, and they predicted the Royals-Padres World Series. I mean, I don't know how old you were at the time they signed Mark Davis, but, but, but do you remember your reactions when they signed him?
1: Yeah, it was it was the same thing as that, wow, the Royals got Mark Davis. Like that was a huge deal. But can we talk about how ridiculous it was that an N is that a closer would be the highest paid player in baseball? <laughs> yeah. Like think about the everyday players and stuff and and I, I we'll probably talk about it in a couple of minutes, but there were there were some not happy ombres in the in that co- in that clubhouse with that contract, especially when things went south. But yeah, yeah I remember the, the, the reaction I remember it was the same as you it was just like holy cow they're really gonna they're gonna win this whole thing and that and it was if you it, throw out the money and the fact that that's ridiculous to pay closer that much throw that out it's it, i mean it's, it was a good signing i mean like money aside i mean that was a legit like you they, they couldn't have known what was going to happen would happen like i don't blame them at all for that signing. and by the way mark davis is like one of the nicest guys like in the history like like, he really is a good guy. So, like, it, it's it's unfortunate. We'll we'll detail it in a minute, but it's unfortunate that it went down the the way it did. In fact, I can still remember him when, when they traded him to the Braves years later um, on the pregame show with Fred White. I love Fred White. I miss that guy. He's a great guy. Um, but he was on the pregame show with Fred White, and Fred said, hey, I wanted to grab you before you uh, head to Atlanta and just thank you for what you gave the Royals. And Mark Davis, Max, legitimately cried. I don't know if you heard that, but he was crying. And in, in the radio interview like apologizing that it didn't work out and that he wasn't better and, and and so you know Not just because of that, but I've heard great things about mark davis So yeah, but it, it was a good signing at the time. I mean nobody can deny that right? I mean you the money was probably ridiculous when you've got Whatever we can talk about that differently, but I mean it, it was a good signing right because he actually had a, a good season the year before Unlike storm.
0: Yeah, and, and it, to me. It's just amazing that a guy Turned down the yankees to sign with the Roy- take less money to come to Kansas City because they're a winner. I mean, just that's just hard to fathom, like in a more modern era when we, you know, we've seen all these tough times that the Royals have had. But it's it's just it's really remarkable. And, and you probably should have gotten some credit there for turning, you know, leaving some money on the table to come to a, a winner because uh, you know we always you know cr- criticize players for taking top dollar and chasing chasing money and he's actually got you know he got paid handsomely and he knew he was gonna get paid handsomely no matter what but he wanted to come win in Kansas City and, and and unfortunately didn't work out well but you know you didn't mention that the the signing didn't go over well with some of the Royals on the team already uh particularly the incumbent closer Jeff Montgomery mm-hmm. uh, he had had a fantastic season in 1989 and probably deservedly expected to be the closer again in 1990 he actually told reporters that uh what he thought of the signing saying quote I think what it does is put me on the best pitching staff in baseball and wanting to leave it. He said he wouldn't ask for a trade, but only because he didn't have enough service time to make such a demand. The signing also caused a rift with George Brett, the star first baseman. Uh, he had a lifetime contract with the Royals, but it would only pay him about a million and a half dollars per year, far less than what their new free agent closer would get. So he, ha- he demanded the Royals renegotiate his contract uh, so that he could you know, have, keep up with the rising salaries in baseball. Uh, starting pitchers Brett Saberhagen and Mark Gubazal also questioned why Davis got so many years and so much money for pitching just one inning a game when they were pitching, you know, many more innings per season. So you know there are some real downsides of bringing a, a big name free agent like that. I think you know you you are going to cause a little rift with players, and you know we I think we complain you know we we think players now complain about money all the time. This has been going on since. Players have been getting paid, you know, from from the 1800s when first players when players first got paid. They've been complaining about money, how much money they make compared to another guy, and so I guess we shouldn't be surprised that even you know in, in 1989 signing a guy to a big free agent contract like that is going to cause some problems.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned Monty. I actually interviewed Monty um dot A little shameless plug there, but and he we talked quite a bit about that about that, and he, and I should have pulled up before this interview what he said exactly, but yeah, he was. I remember him telling me that he was not happy at all. He felt like it was a slap in the face. Um, He'd had the the season of a lifetime, man. I mean, he was great, and the poor guy had just come over from uh, the Reds. The Reds gave him away for a bag of balls for a guy named Van Snyder, an outfielder, and and he finally gets here and and goes from a starter and finds his niche in the back of the bullpen, has a great season in 1989, and bam, they bring in Mark Davis. So, yeah, that – you mentioned that you know Monty, and then all obviously, and, and the everyday players. You know how can you blame them, right? I mean, you're going out there and the starting pitchers, and especially the ones that have been here. And this guy comes in that's had a couple of great years, but you're going to pay him more. Like let's go back, like you mentioned, George Brett in 1990 ended up getting 1.9 million, which is insane. Saberhagen was 1.4. You know, Bo Jackson only made one million dollars on the nose <laughs> in 1990. One million dollars in 1990 for Bo Jackson. So Mark Davis more than doubling him. So I mean, you can see how it would cause a lot of animosity, especially when the season started. Man, I mean, I mean, Mark Davis just got off to an absolute horrible start. And I mean, for the year in 1990, 5.11 ERA, which there's no. I mean, some people like for a, a you know, if you're if you're comparing a starting pitcher in the NL to the AL, you can see why the ERA would rise because they face you know the pitcher three times in the NL and they get the DH. But obviously, as a closer in the NL, you never saw the pitcher, so you can't. There's no league difference as far as ERA. Should, there shouldn't be a jump because of that, because you're not facing the pitcher. So there's no excuse for that. Even if there was, obviously, a, three, a three-run a three ERA raise is not going to be caused by not facing the pitcher. But i uh, just pointing out that it's, the, the switch of leagues really probably didn't have much to do with that. If anything, he probably had a slight edge, because the majority of hitters hadn't seen him much at that point, since there weren't players switching leagues as much today as there were. Uh, back then so it, it, it was just unbelievable 1.8 width the guy couldn't throw strikes he walked close to a uh, a hitter per inning in, in the majority of his outings if you go back and look at him he only ended up with six saves in 1990 but the era north of five the Royals got walked off nine times that year um it, it was just just brutal and the, and the start was so bad and, and i've talked to a couple of different players and, and some of them were off the off the record And I actually asked him about Mark Davis because, like I told you, he's a super nice guy. No one else says anything bad about the guy. But, like, a couple of people have even told me off the record that it was just with him, they think it was just a mental thing, like where he got off to a bad start and he felt the pressure. He heard the boos. Um, He heard the people talking before the year, the players in the clubhouse. I I think he felt like he was resented by a lot of guys, especially when he started pitching poorly. And I think it just snowballed, man. Like, I think – I really genuinely think the guy just – got off to a bad start and it just became a mental thing with him because he was a much better pitcher than that. He didn't lose it overnight. He was still at 29. I think that year Mm -hmm. he wasn't, I mean, he was still in in the, in theory, what should be part of your prime years as a pitcher um, as a reliever. Um, and, And I just think they, they said he was a nice guy that just mentally got beat down and then lost his confidence. And I think he just felt so small. And, and I think it was just very tough on him. I mean, the, the contract ended up being the, you know, like you mentioned before the year, people were already upset about it. And it was a hornet's nest uh, after that. And I talked to you know some other guys that came in here that year, like Andy McAfigan and other guys. And they said, I walked into that clubhouse and, and people were not happy. It was a, not a fun place to be that summer. It was a rough year because of all the expectations and, and what had happened and, you know, the animosity. And, and it was really too bad.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, you mentioned changing leagues and there was a theory kind of thrown out there by, uh, I think, one of the coaching staff that, you know, he was in the National League and he was known for his curveball. And uh, in the curveball in the National League, his curveball was like really well respected and hitters, you know, just uh, couldn't resist it. And they would just they would always swing at it. Then he goes to the American League and the hitters don't respect his curveball and they just spit on it. And because, and you know, the, the coach is like, you know, because there wasn't a lot of video on guys back then, games aren't on TV as much, they just didn't know about his curveball. And, and so he struggled with his command. I don't think I quite buy that. I think it's a nice, you know, explanation. I I think it tends to be the psychological component you're talking about, uh, where he just had so much pressure on him. And, and, you know, you say he didn't start off well. The first three outings he had he actually locked him down he, he he saved his first three save opportunities gave up just one base runner in those games uh and but you know then he struggled and I think he just kind of it snowballed from there once he started struggling uh, it was like he was just trying to dig harder you know and try to dig his way out mm-hmm. of the hole and uh you know like he said he was just a real nice guy that you know, maybe didn't know how to deal with that and maybe because of the animosity it caused you know because of his contract had caused uh, some animosity in the clubhouse. Maybe he felt like he couldn't go to his teammates or, uh, you know, the relationships maybe weren't quite there yet. And so that, that it really seemed to kind of snowball. And it know, really is kind of unfortunate. Cause like, like, I, you know, everything I've heard about him as well has been like, everyone just compliments what a nice guy he is. And so it's, it's really a shame. Uh, well, you know, like you said, the Royals really struggled out of the gate that year. They lost 10 of their first 15 games. Uh, their April, 12, April 27th game against the Rangers, Mark Davis blows a two run lead and the Royals lose a game 7-6. to six. The next night, Storm Davis uh, leaves in the fifth inning after giving up four runs uh, in a 9-2 to two loss. By early May, the Royals were already 10 games back of the first-place athletics. Mark Davis would blow three saves in a week in early May. Yeah. Storm Davis would lose five decisions in a row and had an ERA over six in the month of May. Now, you know, the losing for the Royals wasn't entirely their fault, in, in fairness. The Royals lost Danny Tartable to an injury to start the year. Mark Gubazaw was, was pretty brutal to begin the year as well. And the team really collectively couldn't hit uh, uh, as well as, as like the Oakland Athletics. So, you know, there were some other struggles. It wasn't entirely on the Davis signings, but naturally a lot of attention is going to go to the high-priced free agents who weren't performing. In May, with an ERA over seven, Mark Davis loses his closers role to Jeff Montgomery. Uh, he'd be relegated to pitching in slop time, either when the Royals were way ahead or way below uh, or way behind. A local radio station would play Wild Thing anytime they talked about Mark Davis. Royals fans began booing him when he would enter games. They, even some fans even threw coins at him, which is a little ironic considering he took less money to come to Kansas City. But you can expect that kind of behavior when you're a high-priced free agent and you're not performing well. There were rumors that the Royals were already looking to trade him mid-season, perhaps back to San Diego. With an interesting rumor that they would package him with Bo Jackson to get uh, in exchange for Joe Carter to get Carter in a Royals uniform but that trade never came to fruition. In July, they even tried Mark Davis as a starter, but that didn't go any better. In the Sporting News, Murray Chass wrote, quote, the Royals might as well give them their $19 million to Sammy Davis and Betty Davis instead of Mark and Storm. <laughs> and, you know, it is really mystifying how Mark Davis wasn't uh, performing. I mean, even his teammates uh, were kind of mystified by it. third baseman Kevin Seitzer said, quote, We heard all about him and what a great pitcher he is, and now we're saying, okay, where is he? Uh, Pitching coach Frank Funk said, quote, I've been in professional baseball for 36 years, and with him and the rest of the pitchers on the staff, I thought this was a 36-year dream come true. It's turned into one living nightmare. And of course, Davis himself was the most puzzled of all, saying, quote, never did I envision this. You try to put everything out of your mind, but that's impossible. Every day I think, this is going to be the day. This is going to be the day where everything turns around. This is the day where life is good again. But every day turns out to be the same, only a little worse than before. So, like you said, Mark Davis would end the season with a 5.11 ERA, 52 walks and 62 and two-thirds innings with just six saves. Really a disaster of a season. And things didn't go much better for Storm Davis. He did miss some time when he bruised his knuckles and his ERA stayed over five for much of the summer. At the end of August, he was taken out of the rotation and ended the season with a record of 7-10 and 10 with a 4.74 ERA and just 112 innings pitched. But like you say, I think... He was generally kind of the same kind of pitcher, uh, just without the context of the Oakland Athletics around him. But as for the 1990 Royals, they, they won just 75 games, finishing in, in sixth place. That's the lowest they'd ever finished in the standings. And this, the splurge in the free agency had been a resounding failure. The man who had actually signed the two free agents wouldn't even stick around either, as general manager John Sherriltz departed late that year to take the same job in Atlanta with the Atlanta Braves. Uh, so the 1990 Royals were pretty much a big failure, I mean, how disappointing was it for you as a fan to see a team with such high expectations just fall totally flat in their face? Oh,
1: That—that's one of the most. That's gotta be. I mean, I've never thought about this before. That's just talking right now. That's gotta be one of the top three most disappointing years in Royals history. Does it or top five for sure? I mean, you go back like 2004 was right up there because you had back then. You know, we didn't totally understand stats, even in 2003. Maybe maybe some of us did, but some of us, like me, just choose to believe the Royals weren't lucky in 2003. <laughs> and so I had, I had high expectations for 2004 with some of those guys they brought in. But, like, 2004 was up there. 1990's got to be in there. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. 86 was obviously disappointing and some tragedy. Like uh, You go back, though, like there, there, there was obviously worse moments, like heartbreaking losses in the playoffs in the 70s and the 80s and stuff. But, like, as far as full seasons with expectations, like, that has to be top three right i mean that was just an absolutely brutal season and then it kind of like never really came back like but the the funny thing was like you said that they were six for the worst for for the first time in club history and like that was the end of the world right but like if you look back at it don't you like don't you in your mind max remember them being a lot worse than they actually were like like i remember like 91 92 93 you're like oh they suck like we're horrible but you go back and look, I mean, they had that one, I think it was 91. Didn't they go like two and 14 or something? There was one of those years where mm-hmm. they started really bad. And they always seemed to start poor historically and then get hot in the summer. And they always did that in the early 90s. But like, they really weren't that bad, like 91 through 93. It was just like, I mean, comparatively to where we got, I mean, like in the 2000s, right? Like in 2005, 4, 6, Like if you look back at them, they, they they weren't as bad as we think they were growing up because there was higher expectations for the for the Royals back then. Would you agree with that like when you look back that maybe they weren't quite as bad as you thought?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the 1990 Royals, I was actually surprised to see they finished in sixth place I thought they finished in last place and I thought they were like the worst team in baseball. In fact, they were 75 <laughs> wins, which is like not great but not terrible. I mean, there is four teams worse than them in the American League including the Yankees and they were, you know, in sixth place in their division. But I think but I think it's just cuz they were so disappointed. I mean, that was a the year they were they were expected to be a serious serious contender. the pennant that year and it just totally fell apart and they just were were they they really struggled much of the season and it was just a you know it wasn't just mark and storm davis you know they had some uh you know they were really starting to show i think their age around that year like you had uh you know frank white and willie wilson kind of on their last legs uh even guys like kevin seitzer wasn't quite what he once was uh you know uh and the pitching just didn't work out at all i mean they. you know, Mark Gubzal was was pretty pretty inconsistent all season, so it was it was just a disappointing season. Um, and you know, like you said, like at the time it seemed like oh boy, the Royals are really in the pits. You know, 1990, 1991, 1992, and boy, brother, we didn't know the pits. <laughs> they would they would they would definitely come <laughs> later on <laughs> because those are uh those are mediocre years compared to what would follow. So
1: well, um, the only uh only good thing about '90 was that was Brett got the batting title that year, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, George Brett was excited, yeah. but. But, you know, he started out slow that year, too. He was pretty uh, – having kind, of, kind of a mediocre year and just totally caught fire in the second half. But uh,
1: You know what I blame it on, Max, is they let Brad Wellman go and brought Steve Jeltson. That was the change that cost that, him in 1996.
0: They <laughs> were missing that missing that Wellman magic, yeah, that's for sure.
1: That utility infielder, man, is what did it. I'm telling you.
0: <laughs> well, the Royals tried everything they could to turn Mark Davis around in 1991. They had him work with a sports psychologist after he admitted, uh, admitted he would get too hyped up and kind of overthink his failures. They also hired pitching coach Pat Dobson, who had worked with Davis in San Diego when he turned his career around. Dobson felt that Davis was tipping his pitches, but the results wouldn't be any better under his tutelage. Davis broke his finger in midseason and missed two months, uh, and Dobson would end up resigning toward the end of the year. Uh, Davis would actually turn in some good starts at the end of the season. He made five starts at the at the uh, kind of the end of the 1991 season. In those five starts, he had a 2.22 ERA, but overall, he finished with another disappointing season at 4.45 with his ERA. Storm Davis would be disappointing as well. He was demoted to the bullpen that summer, and that caused him to ask for a trade. He finished 3-9 with a 4.96 ERA. In that offseason, the Royals would uh, accede to his wishes and send him back to his original club, the Baltimore Orioles, in exchange for catcher Bob Melvin. In 1992, under new manager Hal McRae, Mark Davis began in the rotation, but he was shelled immediately. By July, the Royals were considering just outright releasing him with a year and a half left on his contract and his ERA are over seven. Fortunately, they were able to ta- find a deal for him with former general manager John Scherlitz, now with the Braves. Atlanta was willing to take on the remaining year and a half of Davis's contract, provided the Royals cover a million dollars of a salary, plus take on the, the uh, contract of Juan Berenguer, a reliever who was making over a million dollars as well. The Royals <laughs> were all too happy to oblige. So Mark Davis would not fare much better in Atlanta or the next season in Philadelphia or the next season in San Diego. He actually made a comeback at age 36 in 1997, pitching 16 innings with the Brewers before finally calling it quits. He became a pitching coach and was a bullpen coach with the Diamondbacks in 2003, later becoming their pitching coach. In 2006, he was hired by, of all teams, the Kansas City Royals to become a minor league pitching coach, and he remains in the organization to this day. Storm Davis would rebound with the Orioles as a reliever, and he would hang around for two more years with the A's and the Tigers before retiring after the work stoppage in 1994 at the age of 32. He became a pitching coach with the Rangers and the Cubs organizations, and last year he was a minor league pitching coach in the Marlins organization. Well, today the Davis signings kind of serve as a cautionary tale, I think, about free agency. They should also be a little bit of a warning not to put too much stock into some of the context-dependent stats like wins and, and perhaps saves and maybe even RBI as well. But, you know, I think in a lot of ways, too, it's just maybe a reminder that sometimes these guys, you know, they are struggling uh, and it's not because they're not trying hard. It's, it's because they're, they're going through the same stuff. You know, they're, they're, they're as frustrated as anyone else. And, you know, we think, I think poorly of Mark Davis in Kansas city, but um, you know, like you said, he was a really nice guy. He was trying as best he could. You know, I think any of us would take a four year, $13 million contract. um, And, and it's just, it's a shame that didn't work out for him here. But uh, do you have any, uh, and maybe any last thoughts about Mark and Storm Davis? Uh,
1: yeah, as far as Mark goes, just – you nailed it. I mean, it just it – just, it was it was a good signing if you take out the money. Like, it's ridiculous for a closer to make that kind of money even today. It's just don't even get me started. But especially back then, like, you know, for one inning, it's just – the more you think about it, it just kind of is ridiculous. Like, I don't know. So, yeah, but, I mean – for the, if they were going to bring in the, the best closer in the game, they did it. You know, I, do I think it was the right move? Probably not, but I, I see why they did that. I see why they did conversely the the Storm Davis move as well. The Mark Davis one was actually pretty sound signing as far as thought process. The Storm one wasn't. Although you made a good point earlier, I'd never really had thought of before that maybe they were trying to take away from Oakland a little bit too. So I mean, that, I guess you could. There's, I could see why they'd want to bring in a starting pitcher. And he, I'm sure he wasn't their first choice, obviously. If Mark Langston was, and there were some other guys, but. Um, it's, let me tell you my, my funny storm Davis story though, um, about, uh, what, what year was this 2007 or eight? Um, I was working radio in Jacksonville, Florida, um, where storm Davis was living, which I didn't even know. So one day I'm at the world gym there on, on the uh, beach Boulevard in Jacksonville, Florida. I'll never forget this. I'm at the world gym benching one afternoon, like at two o'clock in the afternoon. And this guy spots me, um, and I finish it up, this guy is, you know, put on, is rather large, you know, you know 290, 300 pounds, uh, a pretty pretty hefty gentleman, let's say. And uh, I hear him talking to some other guy about baseball, and I kind of piece it together, and I'm like, oh, did you play baseball or something? And he goes, yeah. And I go, oh, uh, you know, where did you play at? And he goes, well, I actually pitched in the major leagues for a few years. And I go, oh what what team what's your name what what teams and he, <laughs> and it was storm davis I you <laughs> not. storm davis had been had been spotting me that day on the, on the one time i ever saw him but he was in there That's he had, had been spotting me he put on a lot of weight at that time this is yeah. like i don't know 2007 or 8 but yeah i always thought that was like the most small world thing ever i didn't even know he'd lived in jacksonville so i just walk into the gym that day and i'm pinching and Storm Davis is the guy that's in the gym. <laughs> like, what are the odds of that?
0: Yeah, I think he's from there originally, and that's where the AA affiliate is for the Marlins, where he where he works. So that did, kind of worked out well for him. But I mean, he had a pretty good career. He won 113 games, won a ring with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, certainly nothing to be ashamed about in his career. So, he, you know, it didn't work out in Kansas City, but he certainly had a major league career that he can kind of hang his hat on. So, uh, you know, it's too bad, but that's that's the way it goes I guess, sometimes in baseball. But, Dave, uh, thanks so much for being on with me today uh, and taking this walk down memory lane. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find uh, your podcast and where they can find you on Twitter?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's clubhouseconversation.com. No S, clubhouseconversation.com. You can hop on there and then click on former player interviews, current player interviews. There's... God, there's thousands and thousands of hours of interviews. You can stream them from the side or you can download them and take them with you. Especially right now, you know, with quarantine and not having much to do, it might be a good time to go back. And you can find a Royal from every era. There's guys, all, you know, several guys from the 69 team, and you've got dozens from the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s. There's just dozens of players from each decade that have done hour long interviews with me on there. And then conversely, some current Royals um, as well on there. Uh, you know, guys from the, the major league team all the way down to uh, to rookie ball. So there's it's definitely something for everybody on there. It's clubhouseconversation.com. and if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's at royals clubhouse.
0: Well, thanks again, Dave. And uh, you know, I we'll have to do this again, maybe with uh, maybe a more positive uh, memory in Royals history, and uh, we'll have you. I'll have to have you on again sometime.
1: I'd love to talk about the 03 team. Could we do that sometime? Because I can be, talk for days about yeah, that.
0: Yeah, that'd be a good one to have. Good, good one to do because, uh, yeah, I have a lot of fun. That's kind of when uh, I, I think I probably, I think it may have gone to the most Royals games ever in my life uh, during that summer. So that would be a fun one to do as well. But
1: uh. Love to talk about 2003. Little Lima time, baby.
0: Believe it. <laughs> well, that'll do it for this episode of Rewind Yourself. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.